Well, another rendition of how it's all going to end. What do you think, man? How about that? I'm excited. I'm uh, stepping into some uncharted waters for me with this series that we begin this morning called Left Behind No More. Not because I haven't been involved in trying to figure it out, just like some of you. But I find myself in a different season of life trying to put it all together and also trying to radically mobilize a people like yourself to be engaged in God's work because it's a critical time, because it easily could be the beginning of the end. I want to say welcome to many of you. Maybe you're sort of new today. My name is Kerry, and uh, we are um, stepping into this series uh, on the end times, but it's actually a series where we're going to be focusing on what Jesus has to say about the end times and current events. And so I don't know what you were expecting in this series, maybe big charts and everything like that. Uh, There's a surprise gentleman here this morning. I didn't know that was here, and his name is Dale Edwardson. His dad was my pastor growing up when I was a young kid. And I remember his pastor on Sunday nights in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at the Fort Wayne Gospel Temple. We would show up, and his dad had a chart that filled the whole stage. And we spent, how long was it, Dale? Forever walking through that chart, right? And uh, we have uh, uh, spent a lot of time, I have in my personal life, and even our family, in trying to walk through this. And I called my mom this week, and I said, well, what do you think, Mom? Anything changed from the way you think how things are going to end? He says, Carrie, I really don't know, but I sure enjoy trying to figure things out. And uh, maybe you're in that same boat. I don't know how much of the detail of the end times we're going to get into that's going to, you know, scratch where you itch. But like I said, my main purpose is to mobilize us afresh for what God is calling us to do. I remember back in those early days, I think it might have been a part of that series, but there was another movie that tried to depict the rapture. This one that's come out this weekend, The Left Behind, is based upon uh, the... Uh, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye series called Left Behind. Was there 12 books of that? And this is the second time that's been uh, redone. And so it takes place in different parts. Uh, some of you, how many of you went and saw the movie already? Any of you? A few of you did, right? And uh, you're getting ramped up for today. All right, I like that. And so uh, the, there was that depiction um, uh, that's come out this weekend. There was one a few years ago by Kirk Cameron. But many years back when I was young, there was a depiction of the rapture called The Thief in the Night. Any of you ever watched that movie, The Thief in the Night? Not put your hands up there. I want to see how old some of you are. <laughs> All right, The Thief in the Night. I remember that, and it scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. How about you? I mean, they had a guillotine and everything. You better not take the mark of the beast and the antichrist, those kinds of things. I, they put fear into me, right? Well, I want you to know that one of my challenges with us talking about the end times is I think that the evangelical church, though rightly so through some generations past here, has got ramped up and excited more about the end times, though today I think sometimes it's not taught as much as it should be. There is a tendency for us to make it a scary thing. To talk about destruction and devastation and revenge and vengeance upon people. And friends, that's what some of the end times kind of represented movies sort of focus on. And part of you, you know, part of you sits there and you go, oh, that's scary. I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Then there's another part of you says, because you like righteousness and judgment in the world, right? And you're like, 
Yeah, Jesus is going to get them all back. He's going to make everything right. He's going to destroy this world, make a new heaven and a new earth, right? Yeah. And I tell you what, to somebody that's not around you folks, you're scaring the heebie-jeebies out of them. Jesus created the world. He loves the world. He created the earth and He's created the heavens. And friends, whenever we talk about the end times, it should never be something that's a fear-mongering, vengeance-breathing, devastation-cringing type of epic. Because what it really is, is God bringing together the culmination of all the time. His eternal plan is still going to be played out. And so our intrigue about the end times should not come from a wrongful, self-centered, even sinful spirit. It should come from a God-glorifying, Christ-centered enthusiasm of the Holy Spirit in our life that everybody, everybody in this room should be a part of what God's plan is for the end of the ages. Because right now when we look at the world scene, it's a scary thing. There's a young man from Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I'm from, that could easily be beheaded in the next couple days. He was the next one they showed on the film. Outside of God's miraculous change of heart of some people, he probably will. All kinds of things are happening in the world around us. And there is insecurity, even to the point that I find some people tell me these days they don't watch news anymore just because it's just ruining their sense of well-being in life. I want to tell you up front what I believe to be true and why we're doing this series. I framed it up this way. Your view of the end time will transform how you live in the present time. Your belief will either strengthen or dismiss the promise of hope, the purpose of mission, and the presence of Christ for everyday life. We are not going to walk through this series in these weeks for the sake of, oh, it's intriguing. Ah, the movie came out. Let's just tag on the movie and do, do something about that. No. I wrestled for a long time whether to spend a few weeks parked on the end times because I said, is it just a novel thing for us and something might be interesting, folks, and then we go on our way? And this is what I finally felt impressed with the Lord. I believe some of our challenge in our personal life is directly aligned with our view, our worldview of what's going on. And the more we understand what's going on, the more likely we will be to have hope, be on mission, and experience the presence of Christ. Our discipleship is directly dependent, I believe, on our understanding of the end times. And so we put something in context. Then we begin to see where we're at and where we're going. In fact, yesterday we had, uh, had another great men's group. Some, many of you men have been coming. We had uh, uh, five weeks gone, and we're above 20 people showing up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm, you guys are tough. Yesterday's question that we were walking through, because we're in seven questions that rattle around inside men's minds, uh, The question was, where am I going? 
And so sort of our icebreaker kind of thing is, are you a past-oriented, a present-oriented, or a future-oriented person? And so we started to answer that question. Then we had tough questions like, what do you want people to say at your funeral? That's a pretty hard one, right? It's like, I don't want to think about that, right? I am predominantly a future-oriented person. But the longer I live, the more God's teaching me to be a present-oriented person. But I can only be a present-oriented person because of the context of the future and the past. The question, where are you going, is a viable question that all of us need to be answering, not just the men. Where is your life going? How are you putting things together in all the different parameters of life? How do you want to see things aligned in your life? But it's just not the future as it relates to the 70, 80 years that God so blesses you here with. It has to do with far longer range things than that. One of the points yesterday in the men's group, uh, pulled it from Stephen Covey's um, book, Seven Effective Habits of Highly Effective People. Number two habit was begin with the end in view. In other words, what's your goal? And then work your way back to the present. Begin to order your life so that you can reach that goal. That's a good viable point. I want to say with the end times is not only are you future oriented related to your life, let's be future oriented related to the eons of eternity and what God's plan is. Then let's begin with the end in mind where our destiny is, what God's calling us towards. And the scripture clearly teaches that our destiny is to be with him, to rule and to reign throughout the eons of time. And so when we took take a look at the end times, we're not doing it for the sake of it just being a novel, interesting thing, or let's get into all the nuts and bolts, and let's try to disguise, uh, discover maybe what God has for uh, this next season, and then what's the next thing coming. I wanted to change our life. So you need to know this. I am not teaching for information. I am preaching for transformation. And there's a big difference. I trust in the midst of preaching for transformation, there's going to be some information that will be interesting and encouraging to you but as i've sat there my wife just got back from being away for a week last night she says how you feeling i'm so i'm feeling very anxious about tomorrow and she goes what's the matter i said i'm not quite sure how i can get it all put together not just tomorrow over the course of the next few weeks i told her i feel like it's a workshop any of you ever walked into somebody's kitchen who's really a good cook while they're making the big extravagant meal any of you walked into somebody's workshop where they're working on something that's going to be a really cool piece of furniture or something? It's a mess. So as I preach towards transformation, not just to teach with information, I'm inviting you into not only my workshop, but the workshop of Scripture. And it's a little bit of a mess because we're trying to rethink through it all. Many of you walk in here with some predisposed ideas of what you think the end times will be like and how it's going to play its way out. Great. I'm glad that you've been there, done your homework, thought through it. But I'm going to ask you to rethink through it again and put it in context of the scriptures that we're going to be looking at that Jesus is going to bring to us. Some of you walk in and say, I'm just lost with this too. It's a mess in my life. So help me out. I trust it will help you out. Others of you are like, Maybe clueless. Maybe some of you really aren't even interested because your life this week has been a mess. That's why I put this up here. I believe 
that your view of the end times will transform how you live in the present time. Your belief will either strengthen or dismiss the promise of hope, the purpose of mission, and the presence of Christ for everyday life. I walked in this morning, and I had three Bibles, and Mike Bartell goes to me and says, Wow, it's a three-Bible Sunday. (laughs) The reason I bring these up here is because this is part of my workshop. This Bible here is the Ryrie Study Bible, New American Standard. This was my Bible up through first part of seminary. This is the NIV Study Bible. And this is what I grabbed a hold of last couple years, I think, of graduate school and became one of my mainstays. The third Bible is the one I use now. It has bigger print. Yeah. I went back to look at the passage that we're going to look at. And these study Bibles have notes at the bottom. I don't think you could be as different between this one and this one. They're two different views. I don't know what view you feel comfortable with. But I do know this. I want you to feel comfortable with a discussion of the end times and what it means for your life, for your family, and for us as a body. And so to that end, to preach for transformation, to study, to listen for transformation in our own hearts, not just information and the intricacies of all the end times things we can pull out and turn around and analyze, I'd like us to pray and ask Jesus, who taught about the end times to be our teacher because not only do you need him to teach you I need him to teach me and not only do we need him to teach us we need him to transform us to transform us as individuals to transform us as a church body to transform the church Because our world needs to be transformed. Because my desire is not devastation, destruction, and vengeance and revenge upon people. Jesus, his heart was broken over Jerusalem. And he desired that all would be saved and experience what the end of all times and the time yet to come would be. So let's pray to our Lord. My Jesus, I ask you this morning as we're gathered in this room that you would quicken our hearts to be endeared towards you. Jesus, you said that you would send your Holy Spirit and your Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That your Holy Spirit would be our companion, our comforter, our counselor, and our teacher. And so, Jesus, I acknowledge my need before you And these people, Lord of yours, acknowledge their need. Whether they've been walking with you a long time or someone's in this room this morning who's just trying to figure out if there's a place for you, God, in their life. May we be instructed by your spirit. May your spirit lead us this morning as well as each of the Sundays of this month. And Lord, may we be impacted 
in our present life because of a deeper understanding of the end times. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus left the temple. And he was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called out its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked. He says, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus was sitting then on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said. When will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ or the Messiah. And many people will be be deceived. There will be wars and rumors of wars. But make sure that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then, then you will be persecuted and you will be put to death. And all people will hate you. All nations will hate you because of my name. At that same time, many, many will turn from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Those are the first 14 verses of Matthew 24. We're going to be camped in Matthew 24 and 25, but as you'll see, it'll bridge from there into all different kinds of directions. It's one of three major discourses or speeches that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's Jesus with his disciples. And he's given them the scoop. Why? Because they ask for the scoop. Hey, hey, hey. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And so he stepped in and he disclosed to them. Now in this workshop that's pretty messy... You try to put it all together and figure out when's this and what's all that going to mean and where's that placed at and the timeline and the perspective that's going on. But I want you to know this. Our intrigue with the end times is nothing new. It's been going on for every generation that's lived. What's going to happen? And Jesus, he came to them and he spoke to them. I want you to look specifically at these words as it begins there in the first few verses. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now they're buildings. Some of you have been to Israel. The Temple Mount area. It's a huge area. At that particular time, when Jesus was saying these words, 
It was really the third temple. There was Solomon's temple that was destroyed when the exile happened. Then they came back and they rebuilt the temple. But then Herod the Great took over, the Roman guy, and he said, you know, there needs to be more here than this. And so he flattened more of the mountain and he stretched it out. One million over... 1,500,000 square feet was the Temple Mount. Incredible structure. Incredible buildings. You ever been proud of something? Proud of something you've made? Proud of your home? Proud of your car? And you just sort of want to show it off a little bit? Well, the disciples were pretty excited and proud about the temple and the amazement of it. In fact, it still wasn't done when Jesus was talking these very words. It actually wasn't done until... 30 years after he died. It was a huge, major project that took spans of time. But it was inornate. It was ornate. It was beautiful. And they wanted to say, hey, what do you think about all this? Friends, you're talking to God here. He came out of the heavens. What do you think he thinks about it? He probably says, that's a pretty nice job. It's like when our kids come to us go, that's pretty good. God's looking around. God's thinking to himself in Christ. Friends, you don't know what's up. Every one of these stones, every one of these stones are going to be coming down. Do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left upon another. Every one will be thrown down. And so then he goes over to the Mount of Olives, which is right next door. You see, Jesus, he would show up in the temple in the mornings and he would teach during that week and then he would dismiss himself to the Mount of Olives and that's where he would, you know, recharge and chill and then he would go back in and teach in the mornings and so he'd head back to the Mount of Olives and he'd head back to the Mount of Olives and they came to say, tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us, this is really interesting, man. This is better than the movie. (laughs) When is all this going to happen? The intrigue, the intrigue. Now, you must remember here, you and I must remember, when they say here, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There is a lot of confusion in one sense. Because they don't have, they are not afforded what you and I are afforded through all these years to have history to look upon Christ's first coming, his death, his resurrection, right? And then his ascension into heaven. They had not yet heard these words out of Acts. Acts 1, verse 6. Remember this? Jesus had been raised from the grave. He had gathered with them. Then he gathered around him and asked, Lord, they did. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they still doing? They're still intrigued. What's going to happen? How's this going to play its way out? It's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's commissioning from the mission. And then he goes on and he states this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into the heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. There they were. On the other side, the resurrection. Confused as ever could be, most likely. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, empower you to be missionaries. And then all of a sudden, before they knew it, he was taken up before their very eyes, or he vanquished before their very presence. The angel came, and the key words, 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back, keyword, in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Scripture is very clear that Jesus will come back in a visible body, a presence. For all that we don't know, we know this. Jesus is coming back in the same way you've seen him go. Now, they thought he was going to be gone for just a few days, a few months, a few years maybe. No one at that time would have thought that he'd been gone for 2,000 years. But as Scripture says, with God, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. He's only been gone for a couple days in heaven time, right? So here is truth that we know. But when Jesus was talking to them on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse about the end times, they asked about his coming. Well, what do you mean his coming? They didn't know that he was leaving. They were wanting to know the coming, the presence of the Messiah when he would really take the reins and he would bring freedom and bring about the culmination of the kingdom. There was confusion in their mind there. In many ways, there's still confusion in our mind there today. But we know there is a second coming, a bodily second coming. It's going to happen. We don't know when the scriptures teach. Jesus himself said he didn't even know when and when he was incarnate in the flesh. But God's going to do it. The intrigue about the end times is there with us all. There's a lot that we don't know, but we do know that he is coming. And Scripture is teaching that, and Jesus teaches that with his disciples time and again. I am going to do a chart for you this morning. Aren't you glad? But Lance, I'm not going to get into the big old chart that I grew up with because we would all be here forever with that one. Dale, if I knew you were coming today, I would have had you bring one. You probably have a copy of that with your dad. Here's my chart. What do you think? That's my chart. There's this present age, and then there is an age to come. It's clearly taught in Scripture. There is going to be something that happens that moves us from this present realm as we know it, And then there is going to be an ushering in to an age to come. And the word age is a season, a realm. We talk about the Bronze Age, right? Uh, The Stone Age. The age. There is an age that we're in now. Many people refer to it as the church age, right? But there is an age to come. This present age, the age to come, the disciples were asking Jesus, when is this going to happen? When is there going to be a change? Now, I'll put a little bit more definition into my chart, if you don't mind. There was the beginning of time and creation as we know it. You can put the Old Testament all there. But then there was the coming of Jesus the first time. And scriptures teach that really when Jesus came the first time, it was like the age to come that interceded and came into this present age. Anytime you see the scripture refer to the last days, it's referring to the time after Jesus. Are we in the last days? Yes. We've been in the last days since Jesus first came. Now, the discussion of the latter days is another story that we might get to. But these are the last days. And just as you saw him, disciples, go up into the heavens, he will come again. 
there is a second coming of Jesus that's going to happen. And the second coming of Jesus will then be followed in the age to come by a new heaven and a new earth, eternity. Where are you at on that diagram? I'll tell you where you're at on that diagram. You're inside this orange box. Got the orange box? There we go. You are inside the overlap of the ages. Everything that we talk about concerning the end times is inside that orange box. That question mark, same question mark the disciples had, same question mark you and I have today. How is it going to play its way out? But we can never get so intrigued by all the details and how Scripture unfolds, maybe how the end times will be, without coming back to just soberly remind ourselves that we don't know. We don't know, but we do know that we're headed towards the beginning of a new beginning, not just the end. So that's your diagram to hang your hats on. Now I want to come back to this Matthew passage. When Jesus left the temple and he was walking away and he was pointing out these stones, they wanted to know when this would happen. When he's pointing to these stones, he is pointing to this grand wall. That is the western wall, the wailing wall. Some of you may have been there. Some of you may have seen this scene. But that wall is only a small part of what was the temple. It's actually the lower part, the foundational part. And there's even, there's really just a few of those stones that actually go back to Herod's temple. All right? This wall, if you get a little bit closer, you will see the Jewish people today pray at this wall. This wall is believed to be closest to the Holy of Holies part of the old temple, and so they will place their prayer request into the wall. That wasn't possible before 1948 in modern times. Jewish people weren't a part of any nation. God brought back the nation of Israel. Then there was a war in 1967, some of the things that maybe we'll touch base on in the weeks ahead. Access was given to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount. They are there worshiping. Many of them, because there's different kinds of Jewish people, even Jewish people here from background in this room today, still longing for a Messiah, and how is this all going to play its way out? Many in modern Jewish, with a modern Jewish ethnicity, don't think about a personal Messiah showing up anymore. They believe the state of Israel is the new Messiah to be able to lead them to freedom. But this wall is interesting to me, and when I first saw it, I actually had the opportunity to go there two different times a number of years ago now. One of my first years was when I was in college, and I was able to go on a bicycle team, and we took a tour around Israel for a whole month, month of January of January of 19, um, 1980. And I was amazed when you start to look at this Temple Mount. Let's look at some of those stones Jesus talked about a little closer. The stones at the bottom you see have a little bit of a, a finished edge around them. 
those are the stones that come from Herod's temple. They would have been the foundation stones. Then there were reused stones from other different kinds of eras. But that doesn't necessarily look like a very pretty wall, does it? Because it's been all put back together. And it's not nearly as, as tall as the wall ever would have been. But I want you to take a, a reference point to this red box on this next slide. That particular area could be seen as well, maybe rebuilt with some of the stones that have been thrown down, maybe some of Herod's stones are put back in there, that part of it. But that is a small part of what it would have been the grand temple. This here is a model of what the temple would have looked like in Herod's day. I don't know if that strikes you like it strikes me. But here at the Western Wailing Wall today, even this very hour, there would be people there and they're worshiping or seeking God. It's a small part of what would have been in the day of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ left the temple and was walking away and his disciples came to him to call out his attention to its building, saying, oh, what do you think? That was a pretty big place. That was a pretty big deal. And here's Jesus. He looks at them and he says, guess what? Not one of these stones here will remain upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. That wasn't just the throwing down of the building. It was the throwing down of their whole worship experience. It was the throwing down of who they were as a people. He says it's all going to be obliterated and destroyed. If I told you in 12 months from now, the United States would no longer be a nation, that the Capitol would have been demolished, the White House would have been bombed, nothing's there in D.C. anymore. That would be quite a striking illustration or prediction, a prophetic illustration, a prediction. That's what Jesus said to them. And so they were confused. When will all this take place, and what's this going to mean, and, and, and how all does, it, does this play it out? Well, today, this is an aerial view of the Temple Mount area today. You can sort of see where it has its perimeter. But you'll notice that on this flat Temple Mount area today, there's two domes. There's the dome in the middle, the dome of the rock, and then there's another dome off to the left, which is a mosque. Guess who controls the Temple Mount area today? Muslims do. Now, it's said in the Dome of the Rock area that that's actually Mount Moriah. Christians would say where Isaac was sacrificed by Abraham. It's holy to them because they say Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac. He sacrificed Ishmael. Now, you're free to roam and you can go up and down. But I want to ask you, what do you think is going to happen there? As some people would say, that's a powder keg. It could blow at any time. The political unrest and duress of people, of one nation rising against another, kingdom against kingdom, it is commonplace in Israel and has been since Christ and even before. But when we talk about the end times, we're not talking about a make-believe movie that just came out in the theaters. We're talking about a real place, a real time, real people, real wrestling that's going on. What will happen on this Temple Mount area? 
that's part of some of the, the beliefs and the discussions of the end times. But you need to know this. When Jesus left to go down to the lower part of that, down into the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives, he sat over there with his disciples and he began to explain this to them. This, this would have been, if you're there today, this would be sort of like what the view is from uh, the Mount of Olives. Looking at the lower portion of what would have been the temples, what you'd look at today, uh, there's a cemetery in front of that eastern gate. It's believed that that's the gate that Jesus will return and come through. It's all stoned up now. Do you know why there's a cemetery there? A couple reasons. Some people say there's a cemetery there because when Jesus comes back, the dead are supposed to be raised and they want to be there with him when he comes back. But most of those tombs are Muslim tombs. And so they want to be there to fight off Jesus' return. That's why there's a cemetery there. But Jesus will blow through the eastern gate and reestablish his reign in many ways, where it'll be a reign from there, a reign from there. There's all kinds of prophetic interpretations that play their way out, but that is ground zero right there. Jesus wasn't on the Mount of Olives looking at the Dome of Rock and hearing Muslim prayer calls. He was seeing the grandiosity of the kingdom of God and the worship of people worshiping the one true God. And he says to them, every stone will be thrown down. Every one. And you wouldn't think it would happen as quick as it did. But it did. The temple was finished, I believe, somewhere around the year 63 A.D. The Romans came and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. Tore it apart. Blew it apart. In fact, Josephus refers to this incredible temple and he talks about um, how it was made. The exterior of the structure lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner upon it, sun was no sooner upon it than it radiated so fiery a flash that people straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as far as the rays of the sun. To approaching strangers it appeared from afar like a stone-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and befouling the roof. Some of the stones in the structure were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. These were like huge stones. Plated gold, plated roof. They destroyed it, set it on fire. They say one of the reasons that every stone was tore apart from the other is that the, the gold melted from the roof down into the cracks. And so to get the, to get the gold out of the cracks, they blew apart all these stones. But you take the picture of the model that we had. That temple, Jesus is saying every stone down, it's going to happen. The end's going to come. In that era, the end did come. The Jewish people were obliterated. They never existed as a nation from 70 A.D. until 1948. We'll get into more of that as it relates to how that's portraying its way out. But Jesus looked at this. He knew what was happening. His heart was broken. And he told them what? Get ready. All hell's going to break loose. Nope. He said, watch out that you're not deceived. 
this stuff's going to happen. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. Famines, pestilence, earthquakes. It's all going to happen, but those are the beginning of birth pains. One of the things you're going to have to dial into, and this comes from my particular belief, is that I believe in the words of Jesus, you have double fulfillment prophecy going on. Part of what he is speaking prophetically is fulfilled in their time as disciples. There's another part or another dimension to it that's going to be filled more longer term, even possibly in our lifetime. But for the disciples, as it referenced that initial concern about theirs, when is this going to happen? It happened. Many of them saw it in their lifetime, one stone being torn apart from another. So I come back to his words for each of us to have perspective on the end times so that we can live in our present time. Watch out that no one deceives you. You can put your name there. For many will come claiming I am the Christ or the Messiah and they will deceive many. The wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. I want to tell you this. When you watch the evening news, when you see beheadings, when you see one nation rising against another nation, do not get alarmed. These things must happen. These things have been happening. You should not be taken back and caused in, in a cause of fear. Nation will rise against nation, famine, earthquake. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Then he goes on and he says this to the disciples. And by the way, those who came to him, it records this in Mark. There's actually this reference of the, the Olivet Discourse in Luke as well as in Mark. We may reference back and forth a little bit in those two. I'll make one point of reference here. When the disciples came to him privately, there was really four of them, Mark says. It was Peter, um, James and John, and Peter's brother, Andrew. They were like the inner circle. And so he's looking at them on the Mount of Olives with the temple in the background, and he says, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Those disciples saw the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. That prophecy was fulfilled in their time. But I believe it's a dual prophecy for our day today. You will see this happen as well. See to it that no one deceives you. And could I say to you, see to it that you do not turn away from the faith. See to it that You do not allow the increase of wickedness in our world to cause your love to grow cold. These things will happen, but watch the pressing, the molding pressure of the world's events and what's happened. It changes our life. I think in part it's maybe good not to watch the news sometimes because we start to live in fear rather than being mobilized to care and to love our family and to love other people. Or to be in God's word and just be soaking in what God wants to speak to us personally about. We spend so much time in pop culture and contemporary events that sometimes we're not dialed into the spiritual realm like we need to be. So do not be deceived. Jesus spoke this prophecy. 
I believe these first 14 verses of Matthew 24, in one sense, were fulfilled in the presence of those disciples in their lifetime. But I do not believe it's just in their lifetime. It's that dual-edged kind of prophecy thing that's going on. All right? I want to know, Jesus, I would say again and again, how is all of this going to play out? And I'll go back to our diagram. I want to know how all this is going to play its way out, but I want to know it for the purpose of hope, mission, and knowing his presence more. And so that's where I point us to. As we walk through in these days, I think Karl Barth's statement will probably be one that hangs with me for a while. He's often regarded as the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century. He says this, We can't fathom the second advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, and we stammer when we try to speak of it. Your view of the end times will transform how you live in the present time. Your belief will either strengthen or dismiss the promise of hope, the purpose of mission, and the presence of Christ for everyday life. I want to close with just a few thoughts as it relates to those three points. The promise of hope, it should bring hope in your personal life, in your family life, and hope as it relates to our world. It should also mobilize us for mission. If indeed Jesus Christ is returning, then he wants to return for all who would believe in him. And it's him personally that's returning. And so if you don't like Jesus, you're not going to want to be a part of what he has planned for eternity. It says this in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Not only for those then, but for those of us today. We as a church called the Awakening Church are a part of a larger movement called the Christian Missionary Alliance. The Alliance was started by a man by the name of A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson from 1843 to 1919 were the years that he lived. That's a picture of the gospel tabernacle that was in New York City that he ended up serving out of. But it wasn't just in that auditorium that he preached and spoke. He mobilized people to go around the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let them know that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life and to give it to the full and that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so he started the first Bible college. He started healing ministries. He started other kinds of ministries that were focused on Jesus Christ as Savior, as healer, as sanctifier, healer, and as coming king. The whole concept of the end times was deeply embedded in his life and the movement that started out that we refer to today as the alliance that we are part of as a church. A.B. Simpson was asked, one day by a media reporter came to him and asked him the question, Mr. Simpson, do you know when Jesus Christ will return? And A.B. Simpson looked at him and said, Yes, I do. I know exactly when he'll return. And I'll tell you when. If you'll 
write it all down and publish it, including the references. Well, this media guy thought he got a gold mine. Oh, here's this maverick. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to pull this pencil out, and he's ready to go. So listen carefully. Simpson probably said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. Did you get the reference? And the reporter puts it down and he smiles. And he says, I think I'm beginning to see the daylight. I see the motivation and the motive power for this movement. And Simpson responded by saying, then you see more than the doctors of divinity do. The movement we're a part of and what called and propelled me into mission hangs on that very verse that Jesus just spoke to those disciples. If we want to see the end come, then we have to finish the mission. So the end times is going to define my present time by mobilizing me, not just for overseas support and encouragement, but my neighbor, my friend, my co-worker. I want to see everyone there on the final day, on the right side. I was taken back this week. It was two days ago, I think now. Some of you like to veg a little bit by being on Facebook. I was on Facebook vegging. It was late at night, 11 p.m., catching up and some words here and there. Some people, you don't know why these people are in your life on Facebook. You knew them at one time. Why do you care about them now? (laughs) But some of the people that I have on Facebook are people that have been a part of my church, people I had a ministry in their life with for a period of time. And this particular individual, his name's Roger, he happens to post down in the blue something to the effect of, it's hard for me to say this, but my wife just passed away today. And I'm like, what? You see, Roger's young 30-somethings. And his wife and him, I remember them coming as single adults in our church, and then they got married, and they had trouble having kids, and they ended up having two kids. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, is this a joke? And then I went to his wife's website, Lisa, And people started to post on her Facebook site. I mean, her last post was at 930 on that day. That would have been Thursday, Wednesday. And her post had reference to the fact that she said this, 930 a.m. And we are done with school, feeling good that things went well today. She homeschools. That's her last post. And then there's this post by her husband. And then he posts a little bit later. I do a private message to him. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I point him to Psalm 46. Lean into the friends around you. I'm here. You can call me if you want. He's up at 2 a.m., right? He just sends me back a quick private message. 
Thanks, Carrie. I appreciate it. Come to find out she had a blood clot in her lung that went to her lung, and she died just like that. Some of you are familiar with that. Some of you are familiar with situations even. And you're like, no, this can't be. One of his next posts, Roger, four hours after, whatever this. 24 hours ago, I guess, my biggest decision was do I have a Pop-Tart or toast for breakfast? 24 hours later, I feel as if my heart has been ripped out of my chest. Day one of a new way of life. And I checked right before I walked in here this morning. First night back home since Lisa passed. It feels strangely cold laying in this bed alone without her. I feel like something is missing. I know this is my new normal, but I want the old normal back. There's another post, though, that said, Jesus is king. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I went and looked at some of their pictures, and I saw a picture of Roger and Lisa and another friend of theirs underneath a doorway, and there was this little sign that read, My boss is a Jewish carpenter. Praise God when the end comes, whether the end times or you and I don't make it back here next week. We have hope if our boss is the Jewish carpenter, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, as it says in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I want them to sing a song. A song about allowing the life of Jesus Christ to change and transform your life. I don't think it's good to talk about the end times, whether that's in the end of this earth for the new earth and the new heavens, or the end of life as it may be by having our life taken from us. But I titled this series, Left Behind No More, for a reason. Maybe it's because of some of those early things in my life. I would go to sleep at night scared that if the rapture came, I wouldn't go. I doubted my salvation. Sometimes if everybody was away from the house and I was left by myself as a young kid, a middle schooler, I would get a little freaked and go, oh my goodness, did the rapture happen? Has all my family gone to heaven and I've been left behind? Now, I'm not so sure about some of those early teachings if that was all that helpful to me to be placed in that point of fear, but I tell you what, there is a rightful understanding of the end times that made me contextualize the big picture to say, I want to be there when the end comes. I don't want to be left behind. And as the years move by and I now see that maybe I may very well pass from this life to the next without seeing the second coming of Christ, I could. I do know that there will be a time that I'm not going to be absent from this body. And I'm glad that I know I'm going to be present with the Lord. Left behind no more. We're going to be studying this series so we're not left behind in ignorance. Just like the no child left behind kind of program, right? What's going to bring us all along. No one left behind with understanding some basic end times. But more important, I don't want you to fear that you would be left behind if the Lord would return or if you would not be able to return back here next week. 
So as they sing this song, you can sing it with them. We're going to pray after this song. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do what that verse says. Find salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's sing.